Amen, indeed. Let it be our song that our life is defined by Christ. You may now be seated as we go to the Lord in prayer. Please bow with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with praise. Praise because you are the only one who deserves all praise. Because of what you have done in Christ. We come to you and we desire to lift you up as the true king. As the king of kings. Father, what the people in Jerusalem saw whenever they saw Jesus riding on that colt. God, we will pray and hope to see in fullness, God, as you come arrayed in splendor and majesty as the one who is the true and better David. So, Father, we praise you. We say Hosanna to the son of David, to the true and better one who is the king for eternity, who is the king of all kings. And you are this true and better David because in you, In Jesus, there is no sin, not one speck, not one ounce. And Father, we praise you for that because as we remember, holiness came and broke through into our darkness. And so, Father, we praise you that you are sinless and that your Son is sinless. And Father, we praise you because you promised to your servant David that there would always be somebody on the throne in the place of David and Father we get to behold and exalt in Jesus. So Father we thank you that Jesus' reign never ends. It is not ended even though he is ascended, seated at your right hand. Father, he is always in control of all things. There is no king, no earth ruler, no power that is greater than Jesus. So Father, we praise you for Jesus because in him is the fullness of life. And in him, all creation was created through and for him. So, Father, you deserve all praise in your work through Jesus the Son. And, Father, because Jesus is the King of kings, we can come to you in bold prayer, knowing that he intercedes on our behalf. So, Father, we bring these petitions and requests before you this morning. And, Father, we want to pray specifically this morning for the members in our church that are spouses of military members here at this church. Father, we thank you so much for our armed forces here in the United States, but particularly we thank you for the members that serve in the armed forces here in our church. God, we thank you that you've allowed for them to be able to be here and to be able to serve and to love their families in this way. But God, we know, too, behind all those military members are spouses of those who at times have to do really difficult things, like send their husbands and wives away for a time, who have to bear with the struggles of the military lifestyle. So, Father, we thank you for those spouses. Father, we pray especially that you would draw close to them, especially if their spouse would be on deployment or on a special assignment. God, we pray that they would rest in Jesus Christ this morning, the King of all kings, knowing, God, that you hold them. And, God, that not one speck falls to the ground without your ordination of it. So, God, we pray for those military spouses, that you would comfort them in Christ Jesus, that you would hold them close, and God, that you would remind them that they are loved and cherished by you. 
God, we thank you for them, and we thank you that they are members of our church, and ask, God, that you would bless them this Sunday especially. God, from time to time, we pray for different various parts of government because your word instructs us to. So Father, this morning, we pray for the various school officials here within Rapid City. Father, we pray for Dr. Lori Simon and the school board of the Rapid City Area School District. Father, we pray for the board of trustees and the admin team at Rapid City Christian School. And Father, we pray for Barb Honeycutt and the school board at St. Thomas More. Father, we thank you for those various entities and we pray, Lord, that they would accomplish the end to what they are striving to do, that they would educate the young minds within our region. Father, we pray that they would remember and know, God, that the authority that they have as superintendent, as school board members, as principals, and whoever, God, that that authority has been granted to them by you. So, Father, we pray that they would make decisions in light of that. God, we pray that they would not give way to cultural norms or to cultural pressure, but, God, that they would look to righteousness and to good for all of the students in this area. God, we also pray, God, that through their administration, that truth would be known and would be declared in those school districts. And Father, that you might be able to help the students there because of their leadership. So God, we pray for them and we lift them up. And God, ask that you again would remind them that the authority they have is but a short thing because you are the one that holds all authority and reign. And God, we ultimately pray that they remember that you are the source of truth. Not any textbook, not any cultural norm or anything like that, but you are the source of truth and that they would look to you to make decisions for finding truth on behalf of their students. Father, we finally pray for ourselves this morning for the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you might open our hearts to your word this morning. God, we just simply ask that you would help us to be attentive. God, that you would awaken our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to see your wonders anew in your word. God, we pray more than anything that we would see Christ this morning and that you would work in our hearts as the seed of your word is planted, a crop that is 30, 60, 100 fold in production. God, we pray that we would leave here differently because of your word, not because of how well it is preached, not because of who is preaching or whatever, but God, because it is your word that goes forth out in power. So God, we ask humbly that you might speak to us this morning for the good of your people and ultimately for your glory. God, we ask this in the name of Jesus, the greater servant, the greater king of David. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I stated earlier, we end our study in the book of Esther, and we find ourselves in Esther 9 this morning. You'll want to turn there, which is in page 415 in those blue pew Bibles below you. We're going to be going through uh, really two chapters, but it's kind of, chapter 10 is kind of a sneaky chapter. It's only three verses, but we'll be going through the end of Esther this morning. And as you're turning there, I have a question for you all, and I hope you all can remember this, but it's very specific, and I don't mind a little back at this point. Where were you on the evening of Monday 2nd, 2011? Anybody remember? Where were you? It's kind of what I figured. Go silence, right? Uh, Some of uh, the children in here and the students, they may not have even been alive on this day, but I'm willing to bet that many of you adults are going to be able to recall this day. And, And trust me, I realize this is a very oddly specific question, so let me try to jog your memory here. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world 
that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. Ring any bells, anybody? That happened on May 2nd, 2011. And I can remember the exact moment I heard the former president, Barack Obama's words while sitting on the couch in the fraternity basement of Phi Gamma Delta that evening while I was studying for a business statistics exam, uh, praying that I would get an A. I got an A just, by the way. For any of us that can recall the horrors of September 11th, 2001, or 9-11, that night on Monday, May 2nd, 2011, was like a long-awaited breath of fresh air. And at last, it seemed that some justice had been served for the almost 3,000 people that had been innocently killed almost a decade before. There was celebration. I can remember in my fraternity house, people were hooping and hollering, and you go out into the fraternity row, and all these other houses are celebrating this thing had happened. And, and for a rare moment, it seemed like good had conquered over evil. And yet, at the same time, at least for me, I can remember feeling somewhat dissatisfied. There was still, at that time, conflict in the Middle East. Countless soldiers still stationed overseas. And not to mention, thousands upon thousands of families affected by the unexpected loss of those people on 9-11. I'm sure many of us can think of instances just like this one, where we have seen justice be served, but something still feels like it is missing. Well, for the last eight weeks, we have studied this book of Esther, and we finally come to its end. Much of the book of Esther wants us to ride on the way of anticipation and tension. And as, as we conclude this history of Esther this, this morning, we might say to ourselves, that's it? There isn't anything more? As we end this series in the book and look forward to Easter next week, I believe this is the tension that we are meant to feel as we come to the end of this book. The final page is being turned, the story is resolved, and yet it feels like everything is not quite fixed yet. So, to see what I'm talking about, let us now read from the Word of God, Esther chapter 9 and 10. Follow along with me, Esther 9.1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one, who could, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of all the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, bear with me here, Parshandatha and Daphon and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adelia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, 
the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that day a feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned, from, turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed, at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the book of Chronicles of the king 
Media and Persia. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. There's a lot here, so let's just get right into it. I believe the main idea of this passage is this. The main idea is this. God has won. God has won. So remember and celebrate God's great reversal until he returns. I think the point that the author of Esther is trying to get at in these last two verses is God has won. So remember and celebrate God's great reversal until he returns. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this text here. We're going to look at this large chunk of text, and we're going to look at it kind of in three movements. We're going to be starting with the reversal, which we see in chapter 9, verses 1 through 16. And then we're going to be looking at the celebration, which we see in chapter 9, 17 through 32. And then finally, the anticipation, which we'll see in the last chapter, 10, verses 1 through 3. So the whole point is we're trying to lift out what this main idea is from the text. But at the forefront, I want to let you know a couple of things. First, that first point is going to be way longer than my last two points. Just want to let you all know, so bear down and and bear with me here. But I also want to let you know that I'm not going to be able to have time just because of the magnitude of the text and, and hoping that you all don't fall asleep. I want to make sure that you all know that I'm not going to cover every single detail covered within this passage. However, I hope to answer a lot of different questions and, and different things I think come up that we need to see in each section. And so hopefully what you're going to see is, oh, he's going to point out things and some of the maybe finer tuned things that you might have questions on. You have a lot of fodder to chew on for the rest of the week in your life groups, maybe after lunch, this service. Um, Also, along with that, you can always come and talk to me after the service, and I'd be glad to answer some of your questions as well. So, with that said, let's get into it. Let's go into that first point, the reversal, which we find in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 9. In the first section here, what we find really is just the results of this decree that Mordecai have put into place from chapter 8. If we remember from the last chapter that Joel wonderfully preached on, if we remember this decree into Susa and to all the regions and all the regions and all the provinces, they were centered, this decree was centered around three different things. First, the decree allowed the Jews to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. The Jews are ultimately permitted to practice self-defense according to chapter 8. And they can do this against any and all who might wish to do them harm. And they act upon that desire. Now, if somebody just simply hates them and doesn't act upon that desire, they can't go out and kill them. It's those who act upon the desire of hatred. So it's self-defense. Secondly, we also saw in that decree that the violent language in this decree, and particularly the strong violent language in chapter 8, verse 11, was to counteract Haman's decree that was set out in chapter 3. As Pastor Joel stated last week, I thought this was wonderful, if Mordecai's irrevocable decree is to put a stop to Haman's irrevocable decree, it must meet it with an equal and opposite reaction. Equal, strong language. So the decree might seem violent, and the results of these decree might seem violent, but ultimately they are needed because of Haman's strong and violent decree as well. And finally, as you all heard last week, there's an element of holy war at play as this decree is sent out and as it's acted upon. We're going to actually get into this a little bit more here in a little bit, but since the Amalekites, 
where the first nation who tried to destroy the Israelites in Exodus 17, God promised that he would be at war with them until they were completely blotted out from history. That's according to Deuteronomy 25.18. Essentially, anyone who would attack the Israelites here in chapter 9 are aligning themselves with that line of the Amalekites and with the descendants of Agag. And accordingly, they will be destroyed. So, God's people are acting on behalf of God to do what he had decreed to them in Deuteronomy. So those are the three main elements of this decree that are out here. And so when we get into verse 1, we kind of see this thesis statement as it was. Verse 1 serves and stands as a thesis statement, I think, for the rest of the book. And perhaps, maybe, uh, some commentators have argued this is the whole point, the whole thesis of the book of Esther as well. Particularly that statement in verse 1 where it says, the reverse occurred. The whole point of this book is to let you all know that while things seem to be trending one way, the reverse occurred. Something else happened. There has been a dramatic turning of events, and God in his divine providence has used unlikely and even flawed people to make this great reversal happen, almost unexpectedly as well. In many ways, I think we actually see this, if any of you are sports fans at all, like wrestling, we see this term reversal. And I'm not talking about like, hey brother, uh, wrestling, not that kind of wrestling. I'm talking about folk style and and Greco-Roman wrestling. There's this move that you can make in, in folk style wrestling called a reversal. And it's a move where one person is moving from the bottom position, being controlled, to the top position, which is being in control. In wrestling, and and I got to see this a lot whenever I went to school at Oklahoma State, it is one of the hardest moves to accomplish as a wrestler. But whenever it happens, there's something that changes within that match. The momentum swings, everything changes for the wrestler, and they feel like they're in control and they're able to have mastery over the person that they're facing against. And honestly, as well, in the crowd, you can tell there's just something in the air whenever that reversal happens. And I think this is exactly what we see passage. We see the reversal taking place. Well, certainly we could see the reversal beginning and kind of forming and, and sprouting its head if, as it was in chapter 8. Ultimately, we see it finally happening. The momentum swing is happening here in chapter 9. There is no doubt now that the momentum is on the side of the Jews and not on the enemy of Haman, the Agagite. But as we all well know, while not mentioned at all, this reversal has nothing to do and is not actually accomplished at all by the Jews. It's actually all by God's hand, by His divine providence. Friends, I think throughout the Bible we see this theme of reversal over and over and over again. God seems to be in the business of reversal. And we see this idea, I think, littered all over Scripture. For example, I'll just give you three things. We see in Genesis 50, when Joseph states to his brothers, as ones who sold him into slavery, at the end of Genesis, we hear this. As for you, you who sold me into slavery, you meant evil against me. But God, not Joseph, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We see this example of reversal in in the story of David and Goliath when God, through a shepherd boy, with just a sling and a few stones, defeats the giant, the champion of Philistia. And ultimately, friends, we see this in Jesus. When God, through this person who's from backwoods Galilee, 
comes as the Lamb of God, the King of all kings who comes to take away the sin of the world by dying on a Roman cross and being raised back to life. Friends, we ought to take heart that the business of God is reversal. We ought to take heart, Christians, because it seems that in the most unlikely of circumstances and through the most unlikely people, God tends to display his awesome strength and glory. And we see that through the rest of the chapter as well. Another aspect to note within this section is that it has been nine months, nine whole months, between chapters 8, the month of Saban, and chapter 9, the month of Adar. And 11 months since Haman cast the purr. So whenever he cast those lots to kill all the Jews, it's been 11 months from chapter 3 to chapter 9. In less than a year, everything from chapter 9, or excuse me, from chapter 3 to chapters 9 and 10 have completely switched. If you all can recall with me, the end of chapter 3 is kind of a gut punch. It's very sobering. We see these two men drinking after this deadly decree goes out, and the whole city is thrown into confusion. And now at the end of our chapter, peace and, and different things are coming out because everything has been utterly reversed. Friends, I think there's something to be said here about God's timing, right? Eleven months was all it took for God to change everything in this whole story of Esther. And I think there's something to be said about God's timing in our own lives as well. From this passage, and likely from our own experiences as well, it's not a profound thing, I think, to say that God works in his own time. I would prefer that God work on my own time, but he tends to work on his own time. How many of us, when we think back through our lives, we've seen God work in our lives or in others' lives, and and he just does stuff almost unexpectedly because we weren't planning on it. But that's exactly what God does. He, He works through his own timing. Less than a year. Less than a year is all it took for God to change literally everything. A whole annihilation of people was meant to happen in 11 months was all it took for God to completely change and reverse the tone of the story. What seems like a moment, everything changes. Friend, I would invite you this morning to trust in God's good and perfect timing. He does everything. He does everything with his purpose and his glory in mind. And he also does it with your good in mind as well. He works on his own timing, especially for if you are in Christ, for your good and his glory. So, whether you're in prayerful prayerful expectation that God would work and God would move in your life, just like Esther and Mordecai were for the bulk of this book, or maybe God is working in your life and things are really happening, really moving, just like we see here in chapters 9 and 10, remember, friend, that God's work in your life is ultimately for his glory and not ours. It's for his glory. And we can trust that because it is for his glory, It's also, therefore, for our good as well. Another thing I want us to see within this section of the reversal is is that Mordecai has a significant rise, right? We saw this beginning in chapter 7, whenever Haman kind of uh, unwittingly says he wants all these things, and it ends up not happening to him, but actually happening to Mordecai. But now here in chapters 9 and 10, we see the full extent of Mordecai's rise that was kind of foreshadowed in chapters previous. In the first part of Esther, it seems that Haman, the enemy of God and God's people, is the one who will be exalted. 
and the one who is truly powerful and has all things kind of going his way. And yet, what we find here at the end of the book, it is the Jew, Mordecai, who ends up having so much power that there are those from the outside who end up fearing him and fearing the Jews because of how much power he's gained from being exalted by King Ahasuerus. And this obviously, it bodes well later for Mordecai in the timeline. I think this reversal, friends, what we see here of Mordecai almost unexpectedly being risen up to exaltation, it's to remind us of what God decreed in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, he states, he, being God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Friends, I can imagine that for Esther and Mordecai, whenever they saw Haman and they thought about this decree that went out and all these months had gone by of whether or not this was actually going to be fulfilled, their decree, and if people would actually defend them, I have to imagine that at some moments it felt like that Haman had won. But again, they could be reminded that it is God who sets up kings and displaces them. It's God who sets up rulers and displaces them. And Mordecai ultimately could know as well that it was God who ultimately exalted him here at the end of this chapter this morning. Friends, we can trust that whether in positions of authority or servitude, or even in times where there are people in, a, in positions that maybe we don't like, positions of authority that we maybe didn't want, friend, we can trust and know that God has planned and has placed them there and has removed them ultimately again for his glory and for our good. God places kings and rulers, not us. Read with me again in verse 5 of chapter 9. Verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. A lot of people don't really like this one phrase that shows up in verse 5. And did as they pleased to those that hated them. There's a lot of different questions. Well, what does that mean? Did they, you know, do more than kill them? Did they have some evil and cruel intent? Most commentators don't exactly know because, guess what, it's not exactly spelled out in Scripture. And given things, uh, details of war in the past, we can safely assume that maybe perhaps for some pagan nations, that that was the case. But actually what I think what we're seeing here is the author is actually cross-referencing Esther 3.11. If you want to turn back there with me very quickly, Esther 3.11, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Esther 3.11, And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. If you can remember from Joel's sermon last week, a lot of what the author is doing is he's mirroring all these events that ultimately culminate, I would say, in chapter 6 and 7. This climax kind of happens there, but everything else kind of works outwardly as a mirror. And so the author wants you to see that what the Jews are doing within the decree of Mordecai and of Esther, it's actually still righteous. I think some commentators have tried to make this a bigger deal, this 
this idea that they did as they please a lot bigger deal than actually what it is. But again, I think what they're doing here is that the Jews in Susa are actually just simply defending themselves. Again, they're only doing what was detailed within the, in the decree of chapter 8. They aren't doing anything sinister. They aren't doing anything unbelievably terrifying. They're just matching language for language here, uh, as I alluded to earlier in the decree. The reality, though, is that given the sheer magnitude, I mean, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but over 75,000 people wished to do the Jews harm on this day. Given that number and given the magnitude of those who wish to do the Jews harm, it seems to make sense, right, that they would be able to destroy and to annihilate their enemies, especially given the terms of holy war. This isn't anything profound. They aren't doing anything cruel or unusual here. They're just following God's commands here especially on the grounds of holy war that we discussed earlier. I think another thing that a lot of people kind of question in this section as well is Esther seems kind of nice and she, you know, wants to defend her people. And then all of a sudden here in chapter 9, she wants these 10 sons of Haman hung. And truthfully, what's kind of going on here, at least in the Hebrew, is not that she just wants them hung. She wants them impaled on these stakes, these really, really large stakes, just as Haman was. And so everybody's like, where, where did sweet Esther go? Why, why has she done this? Why is she now, like, turning into this, like, dreadful queen that just wants to see, like, blood and nastiness all of a sudden? Well, I think there's actually two reasons why she ends up wanting to impale the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. I think first, what we see is that Esther actually seeks to finally resolve the failure of Saul from 1 Samuel chapter 15. I don't know if you've noticed this, but one phrase that got stated three times within our section this morning in verses 1 through 16 is that they laid no hands on the plunder. The Jews laid no hands on the plunder. Whether they were in Susa or in all the regions and provinces and country regions, none of the Jews laid hands on the plunder. Why is that? One of Saul's failures in 1 Samuel 15 is not only did he spare Agag, the Amalekite king's life, who ended up producing the line of Haman, the Agagite. But according to 1 Samuel 15, 9, Saul also spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. It would not utterly destroy them. In this theme of reversal, we see this specific line of those who would wish to do harms against God's people finally brought to justice. So finally, Esther accomplished what Saul could not. She finally took care, took care of that line that wanted to seek them harm. This Amalekite line that was against God's people from Exodus has finally now been completely destroyed. And along with that, they've also not laid hands on any of the plunder. They've not taken anything because they have followed exactly to the T what God desired in 1 Samuel 15. They followed to the detail exactly what God wanted as he was thinking about the Amalekites being blotted out. I think there's an application here a little bit for us. God seems to really care about the details that he decrees when it comes to faithfulness to him. Sometimes, I can imagine, that's things that maybe we don't even like. Sometimes God says, hey, through Paul, Pray unceasingly. Well, how am I supposed to do that whenever I've got this going on and this going on? Friends, God doesn't care about that. God cares about the decrees of his faithfulness. 
He wants to make sure that we follow those to the T. As we can see here, God remembers. God remembers. According to 1 Samuel 15, the Jewish people failed at what they were meant to do, and God remembered that. And I think we can imply that God is not to be trifled with. And I think this is why, Lord willing, that as we think about, as God decrees what faithfulness ought to look like within a church setting, the leadership and the membership here, we ought to strive to do things biblically, exactly to the T of what God's word says. Now, contextually, that's going to look a little bit different, right? Whether you're in the bush in Africa or here in Rapid City under a nice roof and a nice facility, that's going to look different. But overall, we want to stick to the principle of what God's word is decreeing for what faithfulness ought to look like for him. Because remember, he does not forget. He does not forget. I think the second reason that we see these ten sons of Haman impaled is because God wanted to publicly display the results of those who wish to stand at enmity with him, against his people. God promised to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I think what we see here in this verse and in the public retribution of Haman's sons is just a shadow. It is just a shadow of this promise that God will definitively take care of sin and evil. He will destroy it. And anybody who lines up with sin and evil, they will also be destroyed as well. Friend, if you want to know what's going to happen in the end, I'm not saying this is going to happen to all of us by any means, but what I'm saying for those of us who may not be in Christ, you will be publicly dismayed. You will be utterly destroyed, just like the ten sons of Haman. And you will be a witness as God's holiness of his wrath. And we will be witnesses of his love and of his mercy. So friend, remember, God really cares about this. But ultimately, we need to know this as well. While this impaling and this retribution, it may seem really harsh, we need to remember that for those of us who are in Christ, that retribution and that wrath has been avoided for us. It has been put on God himself. It has been put on Jesus in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it talks about how God actually is the one who nailed our trespasses and debts against him to Christ. We can know, friend, ultimately, that our public display of our rebellion and our sin against God has been publicly displayed, but it's been displayed on a cross and not on us. Praise God for that. Praise God Jesus hung on the cross in our place while we were actually the ones who were at enmity with him. And friend, if you're at enmity with God this morning, you don't have to stand against that wrath and against that judgment. You can come to him in faith and let Jesus, God himself, be the one who takes that enmity in your place. Finally, the last thing I want us to see is just the extent of this decree. So chapter 8, it details all these different things that ought to happen in this decree. And finally, as we see... 75,800 enemies of God are killed. 75,800 people are killed because they wished to do the Jews harm. I want us to remember this is not some uncalled for and mindless killing of innocent lives. Instead, as I alluded to earlier, these deaths were justified by the terms of holy war. And not only because 75,800 people hated the Jews, but also because this was the 
only way. This was the only way that God willed and he decreed according to this decree by Mordecai and Esther that the Jews would receive relief and rest from their enemies. Again, we need to remember that this was the way, this was the way of deliverance for the Jews. was, yes, almost an insurmountable amount of people being killed. But we have to remember, friends, again, this is what God decreed that was right and what was good. Even if it resulted in 75,800 enemies of God being killed. So as we attempt to summarize this section of Esther 9, some of you might be asking, okay, Tanner, just get to the point. What, what's the point of this first section, this reversal? Well, I don't think this is a profound idea by any means, but I think what the people of God need to know, because remember, this book is being read as the people of God are in exile, and, and I think this is what we need to hear as well, is this. We can trust God. We can trust God. We know that God will take care of every single aspect of justice and of righteousness. And we can trust that he will take care of everything for those that hide in him. More than that, friends, we ought to place our whole faith in God. Historical events like Esther and the retelling of these events in the lives of the people of God, they are meant to assure future generations just like us that we can trust and we can place our whole faith in the Lord. And for those of us who maybe do not yet trust in God, they declare to you, you ought to place your trust here. You ought to trust in this God. I think this is true, especially whenever we think of the greatest reversal that God has performed in, in the person of God, the Son, in Jesus. If the account of Esther and Mordecai is meant to bolster our trust in the Lord, how much more, dear friends, can we look back to the cross and look to the resurrection and have trust that the Lord is good and that he is worthy of our trust? When it seemed like our own sin and our own rebellion had won by killing Jesus on the cross, guess what happened? The reverse occurred. Jesus rose from the grave. And now an empty grave and a triumphant Savior who is seated at the right hand of God the Father now prove in all things, even whenever it seems the darkest and even whenever it seems the most unlikely, that God is worthy of our trust. He's the only one that we can trust and the only one that we can have faith in. It's as we declared in our song earlier this morning, all I am, my life defined by I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in Jesus Christ who lives in me. Friend, what stories, what historical events are like this are supposed to tell us is that God is worthy of our trust. So align yourself in faith with that God. Because your life can be defined by that faith. Friend, if you want to have that faith this morning, you can find me or one of the elders that are on the back of your bulletin. And we would love to talk to you about how you can align yourself and how you can place your whole trust in this God. And we'd be glad to talk about that with you. Let's move on now to the second point, which is in verses 17 through 32 of chapter 9, the celebration. The celebration. So now that the reverse has occurred, the rest of chapter 9 focuses on the celebration of this historic event, of this decree being sent out and, and God sparing and delivering his people from the first section of chapter 9. So as we look at this next section, I want us to focus on two big things. And the first, again, I don't want this to be lost on us, 
that the theme of this celebration, which is called Purim, it keeps in line with this idea of the reverse occurring. There's a reversal that's happened. What was meant for a time of weeping, fasting, and lamenting because of Haman and the enemies of God now is turned into joyful gladness and into gifts and food. The opposite of what was intended by Haman is now the opposite, right? It's gladness and joyful celebration. Take a quick look with me at these verses to see kind of what I'm getting at. This reversal is meant to bring us to celebration. Verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested, and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 18. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 19, therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Again, a few verses down, verse 22, still speaking on the details of Purim. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that they had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Simply, the tone of this celebration year by year that is to be held by the Jews is that gladness would be shared. As a matter of fact, Jewish people still celebrate this event in history of their heritage, and it took place in the middle of March this year on March 16th and 17th. And if you think about it, since the 5th century before Christ, so close to 2,500 years now, common practice for the Jewish people all over the world is to celebrate the record of events that occurred within this book that we are finishing up today. While this is certainly not the most important event or holiday within the life of the Jewish people, there's still great importance for them to make known this theme of deliverance in their lives once a year. So that's the first thing I want us to know. Celebration is meant to be the tone of what's going on here in Purim. The second aspect of this section that I want us to focus on is the content. It's the content of the celebration. Within Purim, there are set things to be practiced according to this chapter. There are specific things that the Jews ought to do in light of this. As we've read earlier, the two days are meant to be centered around eating and giving gifts to, to one another and eating a meal together and, and giving food and gifts to the poor. But I think, and I believe, the most important thing that we are told is actually in verses 27 and 28. So read along with me in verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Ultimately, the content of what we find within these two verses here is that the Jews are to remember their deliverance here in this moment in history. They are to remember, they are to recall, retell what happened for Esther and Mordecai and the rest of the Jews in this point in history. The Jews in every celebration after these events, they would retell the whole plot of the events of Esther, as it says in verses 24 and 25. This is what they are to retell. 
For the Haman, for Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast pure, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. This festival of Purim retells the Jewish people's deliverance from an unlikely source and it reaffirms their identity as ones who align with Yahweh. So anytime Purim is celebrated across the globe once a year, Jews will declare that this event actually did happen in history. They believe it to be true and that they are proud to be a part of this group that has been delivered from this calamity. Hopefully, if you're kind of tracking with me, if you understand kind of what I'm getting at, this celebration ought to sound somewhat familiar to us as well, right, as Christians. I believe what the Jews celebrate in Purim is but a shadow of what we get to celebrate. So here's a little Christian trivia. What Christian day celebrates with great joy the delivery of God's people because of a great reverse from an unlikely Savior, occasionally with food being served, and is for both the poor and rich alike, is typically centered around the retelling of that event. I hear a little bit of whispers. Maybe I hear a lot of S sounds because you all are saying Easter. And if, you, if your answer is Easter, you're actually close. Not correct, though. Friends, think about this with me. Don't we celebrate this every Lord's Day when we gather? Think about this with me. Each Sunday we gather, we come together from different parts of town, and we even join in with brothers and sisters across the world to celebrate our deliverance from the just wrath of God because we deserve that because of our sin. And just like Esther, but even in a greater way, the tables were turned, and a righteous and innocent man hung in our place, though we stood condemned and guilty and as good as dead. So that whether rich or poor, you can be invited to a table that commemorates this God-man's sacrifice on your behalf. And it declares your allegiance not only to this God-man, but to one another. Because you all affirm and you declare Jesus' death until he comes back again. Friends, how much more do we have to celebrate when we come here week after week, to retell the story, to hear the message of the gospel, and to know that reality in our lives. Friends, the Jews of Esther's day, and the Jews today as well, whenever they celebrate Purim, they long, they long to celebrate what we get to do each Sunday. They long to do what we get to do. The table we are invited to eat and drink at in faith is incomparable to the events and to the celebration of Purim. So, I wonder if this day, the Lord's Day, not just Easter, is of great importance and celebration to you. Or is this gathering with the saints every single Sunday, is it something just wrote that happens week after week because your spouse, your parents drag you here? Brothers and sisters, the tone of our gatherings and the content of our gatherings should be ones of much joy and of much gladness because of the gospel. Because we have had a greater deliverance in Jesus Christ. Well, yes, there's going to be times like this coming Friday. There's going to be times where our tone and our celebration is maybe a little bit more modified. A little bit more sober. A little bit more reflective. Because that matches what we're retelling. 
But overall, our gatherings each Sunday here, each Lord Day, ought to be ones of great celebration and commemoration because of what God has done through our Deliverer, Jesus Christ. Friends, I pray that this would especially be true of Southgate Baptist Church, that we would be known as a church of gladness because of the greatest deliverance that we have from sin, out of death, and into glorious life with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me now as we conclude to chapter 10, and I am going to read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. As we come to the end of this book, I have to wonder if any of you feel, maybe like I felt, just a little let down at the end of it all. I mean, sure, we've, we've read about this awesome reversal and, and how God's people have been spared. Praise God for that. And it's, it's certainly incredible. But shouldn't there be more? At the end of all this, I I think we can see this in these last three verses that things are just not, they're not quite right, right? For example, in verse 1, when it talks about King Ahasuerus imposing the tax on this wide empire that stretched from India to Greece and it covers over 2.9 million square miles, it kind of makes this rule and authority that Mordecai has a little less shiny, pretty small and insignificant. Another way we might see this is in verse 3. Mordecai is not first in rank, he is second in rank. And that's pretty great and all, and and I'm glad that he's well-liked by his Jewish brethren, and and that he cares about them, and they do right by him, and there's peace, and all these different things. But wouldn't this book of Esther been so significantly more impactful if after the reversal, after all these amazing things that had happened, if Mordecai led his people as the triumphant leader and righteous leader of God's people back into the promised land, fulfilling the Abrahamic promise, wouldn't it have been better if that was what happened? Where they would come out of exile and he would serve as this righteous example of the Jews. And yet, here's Mordecai. Still stuck in Susa, still in exile with the rest of his people, and still under the rule of, and thumb of a king that seems, at best, incompetent and unsteady. And don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't want this to come across as unthankful or anything like that. I'm not unthankful or in awe of what God has done in this book. I mean, he's not even mentioned, right? And he does all these extraordinary things. But I can't help but to feel that we as readers are left to be wanting with a little bit more. Wishing that a greater resolution would have come for the people of God at this point in time. This feeling, this unresolved feeling, this is pretty relatable, isn't it? For those of us, we, we kind of live in this tension. This tension of receiving all these amazing things that God has done for us in Christ through salvation. And yet... I don't know about you, but I feel like Paul in chapter 7 of Romans, right? How long, Lord, will I have to deal with this body of flesh? We find ourselves in this in-between of redemption and final glorification. We find ourselves squarely in this idea of the already 
and not yet. We are firmly in the already members of God's kingdom and the not yet of being with the actual king. Perhaps some of you feel that this morning. Maybe you see and feel what I'm feeling at the end of this book of Esther and how we, those of us who are in Christ, can feel that now as we anticipate Jesus' return. It's great to know that positionally we are forgiven. It's great to know that we can affirm each other's faith in Jesus Christ week after week. But man, wouldn't it be a lot better if we were with that Savior? So what do we do? What do we do as we're in this already and not yet in the in-between? What do we do collectively as a church, as we anticipate this promised arrival that we see in Revelation, this promised arrival of our rock and our Redeemer? What do we do? Well, we do what the author of Esther does in this book and has caused us to do. We look for God. We look for God. We look for God in our everyday normal normal circumstances, and we look and see his evidences of grace. We remember daily, friends, that God has won the greatest victory, and the end is already secure. And then on top of that, we look for more evidence of God's grace in our brothers' and sisters' lives as we anticipate, as we wait for our Lord's arrival one day. We come together each Lord's Day to remember and to retell the message of the gospel as we walk in this season of in-between. We come to the Lord's table this week, we come to it now, for a time to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes until he returns, and we await that glorious day where with unhindered eyes and unhindered heart and unhindered soul, we will come to a table where we can actually dine with the king himself, and we will feast in Zion. We will wait, and we wait and declare, yes, God has won. God has won, so let us all now remember and celebrate God's great reversal until he returns again. Let's pray. We thank you and we praise you and bless you that you have caused a great reversal, that the tables have been turned. But God, we anticipate, we await for the day where we experience this fully, where it is realized. God, where we don't just take the bread and the cup in part, but that we take it fully because we will see then as you will see us then, face to face with hunt in your eyes. So God, until then, help us to wait upon you, and to wait and to rest on you in anticipation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.